But when I read this, it was just fascinating to me. She grew up um, in a place uh, called Berezne, Poland. This is a couple of uh, pictures of that area that I found on the internet. In 1901, she was born and named Otilia Trinkler. And uh, she had a hard but happy childhood growing up in, on a farm with Christian parents as well as uh, five siblings. And uh, in 1917, all of that changed uh, because in 1917, her and her siblings were all shipped off to Siberia by the Russians during the Bolshevik Revolution that Lenin led and uh, their life was very hard. And so I realized that uh, my grandma's family when she was growing up were, were refugees. And uh, again, these are just pictures that I found on the internet of that time, some of the refugees that were taken from Eastern Europe into Siberia. And life was hard. One year into that time in Siberia, in 1918, my, my grandma's father died. And he died on a Good Friday, and they buried him on an Easter Sunday. Uh, about a few months later in the same year, their mother died, and uh, they buried her as well. My grandma recalls praying with her sister, one of her sisters, and praying about it. And as she prayed, she had a vision of, of her mother uh, going up a steep path and turning to look at her. And as she turned, she said, you will be coming too, Tilly. You will be coming too. The following is a sermon podcast from White Ridge Baptist Church. Life became even harder without their parents in Siberia. And she had to hire herself out to anybody that would hire her to do anything from caring for children to animals and chores around the farms. And even that barely gave them enough to eat. And top of it all, she worked for people that were extremely cruel to her as a refugee from Poland. Now, I want you to know that it was at this time in history, in the hard and cruel winter of 1918, that Russia, Siberia, and Central Asia faced the biggest outbreak of typhus in modern history. I am not referring to the Spanish flu the H1N1 Spanish flu um, that, that, of course, made all kinds of people 100 years ago wear masks like we're wearing today. I'm not referring to that. I am talking about a typhus outbreak that was the result of infected body lice that lived on people. And uh, here's a couple of advertisements around the time, one in uh, English, but uh, it was basically, it was called trench flu, our trench uh, flew as well because it was often passed on by soldiers that lived in close quarters in trenches. There's a poster there from 1919 and how they tried to deal with this body lice that infected people and was easily transmittable. So here is, here is the story that in a country that, that was faced with a devastation of famine, and civil war and strife, and a socialist revolution. Added on top of that was an epidemic of typhus. And, and um, it swept across the land. It started in the cities and it went out to the rural areas. And uh, this happened all at the same time 
In Russia alone, there were about 2.5 million people that died just of this infected lice, this typhus. My grandma recounts in her stories that she had translated, my grandma recounts that all of her siblings got typhus and that they lost their hair, they became very weak, and thankfully none of them died. And, um, and this all happened 100 years ago. And by the grace of God, exactly 100 years ago, in 1920, they were enabled to go back to their farm in Poland and rebuild there without their parents. And I think it's important to ponder history. Um, Typhus, that disease, is easily cured today by antibiotics. It's lost its importance in a public health concern around the the world, but 100 years ago, before antibiotics, this this disease changed history, literally. People have said that it it actually uh, changed the course of the war. The war to end all wars would not end as soon. In fact, it said that if Russia could have mastered this louse, this lice, they could have actually had much more success in the war. Lenin himself, at the end of the war in 1919, said this. He said, either socialism will defeat the louse, or the louse will defeat socialism. In that time, those four or five years during World War I, the Spanish flu is claimed to have taken around 50 million people. One-third of the world's population was infected by this this H1N1 flu, Spanish flu. Two percent or so died from it. Now remember, World War I took about 37 million people, so this Spanish flu was even greater in devastation than, than, than the World War I, all of civilians and military personnel that died. And then there were these other things going on, like this typhus epidemic in certain parts of Russia and Siberia and Eastern Asia. And so, why am I sharing all this? I'm sharing all this because we still live in times that are uncertain. Today, this day that you live out, this 24-hour day, 150,000 people will die on planet Earth among a population of 7.8 billion. And the text of Scripture that was read to us this morning says this, For you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. You are a mist like the mist that you block with your mask when you talk. You are a mist that appears for a moment and vanishes, James says. He's writing a very important letter about some very important themes that should matter to anyone who has genuine faith in God. And he is writing today in the scripture that we are looking at, and he's talking essentially about the stewardship of our time and our riches, our resources. Now this word stewardship means the activity or job of protecting and being responsible for something, the careful and responsible management of something entrusted to our care. 
In a biblical terminology, biblical stewardship is defined as the use of God-given resources for the accomplishment of God-given objectives and goals. And so as we look at these two themes of time and resources and how we steward them, how we're entrusted with them, we're going to examine what James has to say. And he starts by acknowledging in this matter that, that there's an uncertainty about tomorrow. That's what he says in verse 13, come now, you who say. Notice that he starts this come now in both themes, in chapter 5 verse 1 and in chapter 4 verse 13. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town, spend a year, trade and make a profit, and yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, he says. Why does it take a pandemic to awaken us to the reality of things that we should be living by and aware of all the time? Why is it that it takes a pandemic like the coronavirus to awaken the human community, to the realities of a sovereign God and of the realities of the uncertainties of tomorrow and of our lives. One year ago, we did not even know what the coronavirus was. And if we had heard of it at all, it was something overseas in China somewhere. We did not understand how much it would affect our lives James says it is foolish, it is arrogant to live our lives with an attitude of presumption. Just like the Invictus poem of William Hen Ernest Henley, the word Invictus means unconquerable, uh, invincible. And in the last line of that famous poem, he says, It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. And what I want to say is, no. No, you're not. That's just absolute arrogance. That's just foolishness. Just, just living in this pandemic right now reminds us of how absolutely foolish human wisdom is. The uncertainty of tomorrow. But also, James talks about the uncertainty of our lives. It's not just that tomorrow's uncertain. And the rest of today is uncertain. It's the fact that our very lives, the breath in our lungs, the, the beating of our hearts, that's uncertain as well, James says. He says we're a mist that appears and then vanishes. You do not have any guarantees that you will be alive tomorrow. None of us do. And even if you are to live to be 100 years of age, one day, there will be a day when you stand before your Creator and you will give an account of all one of those days that you lived for 100 years. James is talking very soberly about very serious themes. He writes that our, our plans for business and profit and pleasure, these are all uncertain. They may, they may not happen. He, thought, he talks about this, the thought of you living to a ripe old age and using that pension plan money, that's all uncertain. He says that our lives are a mist that vanishes. And so it begs the question, does it not? Does it even make sense to make any plans about tomorrow? <laughs> and, and he anticipates that. He, he realizes that the readers, the first century readers, are going to think, well, what does it mean then? Why, why should we plan anything? And so he says in verse 15, Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Did you catch that? 
If the Lord wills, we will live. Stop there. The, the, the other side of that truth is that if the Lord does not will, we will not live. He finishes the sentence. He says, if the Lord wills, we will live, and we will do this or that. And the other side of that is that if the Lord does not will, you will not do this or that. It doesn't matter how much plans you've put into it. And so James is talking about the certainty of the Lord's will. The certainty of God's will. Parallel text is in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 15. Be careful how you live then, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what? What the Lord's will is. In other words, day by day, yes, we make plans for tomorrow, but day by day, we are pressing into God, saying, Lord, what is your will for this or that? What is your will for my life? That's the way we live our lives. Jesus, of course, is perfect example of how to live in the Father's will. He lived so in tune and so in perfect harmony with God. In fact, in John 4.34, he said, My food is to do the will of the one who sent me. That's what Jesus lived off of, was doing the Father's will. In John 6, 38, he says, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but to do the will of the one who sent me. Back in the spring when the staff were, were toiling over a ministry plan for the coming year, September to August, September 2020 to August to 2021, and, and we, were, we were thinking about a ministry plan and trying to hammer that out in the middle of a pandemic of absolute uncertainty. And we were just talking to each other and praying each week about what do we do? How do we do this? We landed on John 5, 19. <clears throat> we landed on that scripture <clears throat> where Jesus says, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing and we thought to ourselves, well, I think we can live by that. <laughs> we can live by that. We, can just, we, can, we can't do anything on our own accord, but we can certainly do whatever we see God doing. And out of that came a statement that we decided would be a, a, a ministry focus of this coming year, embracing God's work in us and through us wherever we are placed. If God places us in a pandemic for more than 2020 into 2021, if God places us in joblessness, if God places us in sickness, however it is that the will of God places us, we are going to trust in his sovereign purposes. We're going to believe that he can do his will. We're going to believe that his sovereign hand, his perfect will, his limitless power, his unmatchable wisdom, all of that can lead us into the, the kind of ministry that God wants White Ridge Baptist Church to have. And even more fruitful than we had in pre-COVID years. And so even in these days, what I'm saying, I believe God's word is teaching us this morning is, even in these days, and maybe especially in these days, when it's easier to go home at night and just put on Netflix, even in these days, God is saying, I want you to steward this time. This is a window, church, this COVID-19 is a window for you of how to re-examine your ministry. Pause. 
Re-examine your own individual life. You've got more time right now. Why don't you look at how it is that I want you to live, God says. I apply that to our church. I apply it to individuals. I apply it to marriages and families. And so James concludes this part in verses 16 and 17 saying that not to live our lives tied closely to the will of God is three things. It's arrogant, it's boastful, it's evil. And then he concludes this section by saying, and if you know, if you know the right thing to do that is the will of God and you don't do it, then it is sin. He defines sin, knowing the will of God, the right thing to do, and then not doing it, not pursuing it. Let's move on to talk about the second point of this morning of stewarding our resources. Verse 13 began with come now. James again goes back, chapter 5, verse 1, with come now. He's changing subjects. He's saying, now I want to talk about your resources, you rich people. He says, come now, you rich who weep, weep and howl and for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted. Your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have been corroded. Who is James talking to? <laughs> I, I had to ask that question. And, and I don't have a perfect answer. He's talking in the whole letter to the believers, the churches, that are scattered as a result of the persecution we read about in Acts 8. But who is he talking to, these rich people that are living like this, exploiting the poor? Well, you know, a little clue came to me in my private time when I was reading in the book of Jude. Now, we talked a long time ago about the fact that most people believe that the James, James being spoken of as the author here is the half-brother half of the Lord Jesus Christ, the eldest of the siblings of Jesus after Joseph and Mary were wed. And Jude also, the book of Jude, just before Revelation, is also a brother, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. That was believed for the first four centuries of church history. And uh, his name is Jude or Judas, sometimes translated. A very common name. That's why there's so much debate. Most people believe this was a half-brother of Jesus. So here are two half-brothers of Jesus in the early church writing letters to the same people, the scattered church, okay? Jude written slightly after James. And what does he say? He says in Jude 1 verse 3 this, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. The faith is under attack. Contend for the faith. Why? The faith that was delivered to the saints. Why? For certain people have crept in unnoticed. And they're ungodly people, he says. So I don't know if I'm, I'm, I'm right on this. I'm just saying to you that this would make sense that James is now writing a group of scattered Christians who have had an infiltration of insincere people, not true believers. They're ungodly, and they've crept in among the church. And now they're giving the church a really bad name. I think this is a plausible answer to what James is about to teach us now. He's talking to those who are rich, who have trusted in their riches. He's talking to those who have, who have um, gone down the wrong path of trusting in wealth. 
Just as in chapter 4, verse 9, he talked to those that are given over to hedonistic passions. He's saying that if you have something in your life that is controlling you rather than you controlling it, it is an idol, and you should weep and mourn and be in repentance now so that you will not be weeping and mourning and being in grief on the day of judgment. God is a jealous God. He will not share his affections, your heart's affections, uh, uh, to anything else in your heart, an idol, a dependency, a pleasure. It doesn't matter if it's a, a blatantly evil pleasure, idol, or if it's something that's commonplace and socially acceptable. If it's controlling you rather than you controlling it, God says, no, I didn't, I didn't do that for you. I didn't die on the cross for you to just be forgiven of sin. I, I died on the cross for you to be defeating of sin. To not live in a different kind of slavery, but to live in the victory and the freedom of Jesus Christ. That's the journey all of us are on. But if we look closer at the text... We see that James is writing to a certain kind of people who were so captivated by their money that they were actually exploiting the poor, perhaps the people that Jude is referring to. In verse 3 it says their gold will testify against them. All their money is going to be one day brought into the courtroom and testify against them on the day of judgment that they have laid up treasure in the last days. What a folly. Think about that. Laying up treasure on the last day of your life. The, the, the last day of your life, you're on your deathbed. What do you decide to do? Put some more RSPs away. How foolish. He goes on in verse 4 to say that, that um, the money, not only the money unjustly acquired testifies against them, but every worker that was not paid their due will also raise their voice to the Lord of the harvest and they will speak against you. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You might be listening to this passage being read and preached this morning and think, I really don't know how to relate to this. It doesn't apply to me. And maybe you're right in some ways. But maybe also the Holy Spirit could put his finger on some area that you need to re-examine dealings with a family member from days gone by or a friend or neighbor, something gnawing at you. If the Holy Spirit puts his finger on something, then we are, we are hard-pressed to ignore it. We need to re-examine. It's never too late to seek to correct our mistakes or reconcile our differences as far as it depends on us. But the other way of applying this perhaps is, is to look on this on a much larger scale. To think about us not as the individual sins we might have done to defraud someone that worked for us or to steal from the poor, but rather that in a corporate way, the human community, we're part of a system, a global system, that might be doing some things that we need to correct. On September 27th, we had, we had a Freedom Sunday. David Pollendine, who works with International Justice Mission, shared about how many people on earth live outside of the rule of law. It's a crazy number. And then he went on to talk about those that have no protection, the 40 million people that live in slavery in our day and age, the one in four victims that are children of forced labor, the human trafficking, which is about a $150 billion industry annually. It's hard for us to imagine these things, and yet each of them are real people with real faces and names. 
And some of their stories are on the International Justice Mission webpage. I, I raise them because IJM is, is not only a Christian organization. Did you know that IJM, and I'm not, I haven't talked to David about this, by the way, <laughs> but IJM is the world's largest anti-slavery organization. That's pretty important. I think Christians need to be on the front lines of these things. Whether we're talking about brick kilns or brothels, I think we need to be. If we're not personally on the front lines, we can have some influence in being on the front lines. And I noticed that yesterday uh, on their webpage, you can become a freedom partner and help those who are trapped by injustice. God wants his people to be all about what is fair. God wants his people to be all about what is just. And I'm not sure how God wants us to respond to this, but I do know that when we, when we read anything in the Bible that has to do with economics and money, we can possibly get a little uncomfortable, and we can start to have blind spots when it comes to these things. No one likes to disrupt their comfort. So we have to examine ourselves in light of, the God, of God's word. We have to ask ourselves, like in verse 5, which brings out the, the subject. He says, you have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. This is similar to verse 3. Can you imagine, not only can you imagine uh, dying on your deathbed, wanting to invest more money somewhere, why also would a farmer fatten a, a, an animal up on the very day that they're taking it to the slaughterhouse? This makes no sense. And what James is saying is, you rich people, do you not realize that all these injustices that you're doing are just going to be testimony against you? You're fattening yourselves up for the day that God is going to bring his judgment for the slaughter. These are strong words that he is giving here. You've laid up treasure in the last days. You've fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. What foolishness. What kind of lifestyle are we to pursue on earth? James is teaching us that, that we must have an eternal mindset. James is teaching us that, that we need to live with a different perspective because of a day of reckoning that is coming. Why would anyone take a chance of getting away with something self-serving and self-indulgent on the backs of the poor or oppressed when we know that we're going to be held accountable? You're only fattening yourself for the day of slaughter. Graphic language James is giving us here. The text presses us to think about how we live. Do we examine our lifestyle regularly? Do we, do we examine our consumer patterns regularly? Do we examine our generosity regularly? Do we examine the definitions of our wants versus our needs regularly? Do we examine the insular living of our habits regularly? These are things that we are just pressed to have to think about, I think. I was looking at a book this past week called Serving with Eyes Wide Open. Author David Livermore tells a story of Ugandan church leader. Ugandan church leader, and he must have had a mission team join him because he said to this, to this author, he said, we didn't even know we were poor until someone from the outside told us that. I mean, it's true. Like, it's all a comparative thing. I think about, I think about my grandma, Jank, and I wonder sometimes, what would grandma think of how I live? 
Would grandma come alongside my home today and live with me and my family for 24 hours and say, you're self-indulgent, you're living in luxury. Well, I think probably compared to the way she lived 100 years ago, I am. And so what is enough? What is the right way to live? I know there's no easy answers to these things. We need to take them in to our prayer closet and say, God, what is your will for my life? What is your will? And so, I didn't mention it earlier, actually, but um, my, my grandmother was a prayer warrior. And there are stories through the Second World War when my dad, the eldest sibling, and my grandfather were off fighting in the war with the German army. And my grandma had the four younger siblings of my my dad, and she has prayer request after prayer request that was answered, saving lives, incredible. I believe that I'm a pastor today in part because of the prayers of my grandma. I really do. And so maybe you have some other people in your life as well that you go back in your history. Maybe you go back and think about some others that are giving not only your, you a heritage, but a heritage of faith. Maybe it would be good, especially thinking at a Remembrance Day time, to think back and remember, what would they think of my life today? How could I honor their legacy of faith by living my life tied closely to the will of God? To conclude this morning, I want to read to you the parable that Jesus tells in Luke chapter 12. And in Luke chapter 12, in verse 13, it says that someone in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to them, Man, who made me a judge or an arbiter over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them this parable. And he said this, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have now nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and, and there I will store all my grain and my goods and I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be then? And so is the one who lays up treasure for himself but is not rich toward God. God wants his people to be just and to be generous. May God lead us to be people who are fair and just and generous and who live in the light of eternity. I'm going to invite Michelle Schmidt to come up and she's going to pray for us as a body of believers that we might respond appropriately to the word of God this morning and that we might be the kind of people that reflect his grace, his justice, his fairness in all things. Amen.
Let's pray. Lord God, you are a fair and just God, and you are fair and just even when we don't deserve it and when we are not. Um, Lord, but may we strive in our lives um, to live in that way. All that we have is yours, Lord, and may we be good stewards of it, of our time and of our resources, Lord. And may we live our lives trusting your will for us, even when that's not comfortable, even when that pushes us past what we think we can do. And may we embrace God's work in us and through us for wherever we're placed. And as we strive for nothing more than you, we know that you are gonna meet us where we're at, Lord. Thank you so much for your word, for your word spoken in truth. Thank you, Father, in your name I pray, amen. Stand together. There's something very important that I meant to uh, to say before, and I missed it. Uh, this past week, uh, Kathy McGimsey, uh, her mother, passed away this past week. And so, uh, to Kathy, if you're watching, we want, we want to offer you our condolences as a church, and please keep Kathy and her family in prayer. And let's close in prayer, please. Father, thank you for meeting us here today. I pray that what you have taught us, that we would not walk away from it as someone looking in the mirror and forgetting what they look like, but that we would continue by the grace of your spirit to, to think about these things, to think about our time and our days, to think about how we are honoring you. And may you indeed be honored by this church family. Bless us as we go from here. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Blessings.